Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. Now, I just had the pleasure of talking with three amazing scholars who have just produced two beautiful volumes and have a third on the way. This was Eric Taliacazzo, Helen Shio, and Peter Perdue, who have just co-edited two volumes that we talked about today. These both came out with Harvard University Press in 2015, and they are Asia Inside Out, Changing Times, and Asia Inside Out, Connected Places. Both of these volumes bring together a range of different kinds of scholars who are working with text, some of them are working with images, who come from different disciplinary backgrounds, are working on different geographical areas, from different periods, engaging different kinds of source materials, and are having conversations not just amongst each other, but also with the spaces in which their gatherings, the gatherings that produced the volumes, um, took place, that generate a very, very different way of picturing, of writing about, of imaging, and of thinking about Asia as a space, as, as actually a plurality of kinds of space, maritime and on land. Um, and, and it's a really wonderful way of not just thinking about um, what it can mean to do this kind of connected collaborative work, but also um, to see it modeled in action. So as um, you hear the conversation to come, you'll hear us talking about some of the individual contributions to the volume. You'll hear us talking about the kinds of material um, and also conceptual resources that made such a conversation possible. And you'll also hear us talk about what's to come. Um, What can we expect from the third volume that's not out yet? Um, And what are the visions of each one of the co-authors for where we might go next? It's a really fascinating project. Um, It's really been inspiring to me very, very much so in terms of how I think about the possible futures of my own work in scholarship. Um, And I'm really grateful to you listeners for being part of this conversation as well. So thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy and I will leave you to it. I'm here today to talk with Eric Taliacozzo, Helen Shio, and Peter Perdue about their new edited volumes, Asia Inside Out, Connected Places, and Asia Inside Out, Changing Times. And we'll also be talking about the third um, coming volume in the series. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, you three, and thanks very much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start by giving listeners a sense of how the project started um, and how you all came to it. Helen, would you mind um, starting us off by explaining really the genesis of the project that's generated these two volumes so far? Yeah, sure. Let me say a few words since I I started this whole thing. Uh, just a little background and our key concerns. I mean, 15 years ago, actually, um, sitting at Yale, I was sensing that the center of gravity of Asian studies uh, uh, was moving to Asia. And so I set up a platform in Hong Kong, out of all places, to try to facilitate such move. Um, and, we were, and I was quite determined to promote interdisciplinary and interregional research and to build, uh, to build a critical community of like-minded colleagues and our graduate students who wished to be conceptually creative. And, and, and that was about 2001. But by 2006, um, I was feeling that Asian scholars were getting too China-focused. 
And so I decided to take off in the opposite direction. That is to, to explore a broadly defined Asia all the way to the Middle East and Africa. And in fact, it dovetailed with other activities initiated by some of our partners today. Uh, first, uh, Social Science Research Council in New York. Um, um, and it was organizing activities to rethink regional studies and, of course, with all the funding implications. And so, um, in fact, in 2008, 150 of us met in Dubai. In 2010, we, uh, another group, a similar number, met in Singapore. 2012, we met in Hong Kong. 2013, we met in Istanbul. And then the next year, we're hoping to meet in Seoul. So, in a sense, you know, all these activities in these intervening years make us feel that teamwork is absolutely necessary because we really cannot cover this entire region uh, on our own. And so in 2008, I think, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I approached Eric and later Peter, to join me in this venture. Uh, because uh, there's a reason for it, because we all worked on the quote-unquote margins of the Asia landmass. Peter chasing after the nomads in China's northwest and Central Asia. Eric and I chasing after mobile water-based populations uh, uh, along the southeastern coast all the way you know, from East Asia down to Southeast Asia. Uh, these people were probably branded as merchants or boat masters in times of peace, but then in times of turmoil, they are seen as traffickers of all sorts, and rebels, pirates, uh, uh, and so on. And so we, we thought that we have a perfect, you know, triangle here. Uh, covering north, south, east, west of this landmass we call Asia. And so I allocated about um, $200,000, I think, Eric. Did I give you that much? <laughs> I, it wasn't given to me personally, but yes, it was given over to the project. We gave our, 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 our team, you know, from, the, from this Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences, which I set up in Hong Kong. Um, so... We, we have a budget and we organized several groups of colleagues, you know, who are all also doing very unusual empirical and archival work, uh, both for historical and contemporary topics. And so we organized, uh, um, we, we, we plan to organize three workshops and each of the workshops would have a field trip associated with it so that we walk the field together as well. And with all that, we, we, we hoped to to be able to rethink uh, or reconceptualize the entire idea of Asia, um, uh, looking at it not just as a landmass with static, bounded, state-centered economies and cultures, but to see it as more like an assemblage of historical processes, highlighting flows of goods, people, ideas, and, and, and all that, you know, kind of stuff, you know, emphasizing fluidity and contingency. Um, and so always boundary crossing. And, you know, some of the major boundary crossing themes would have to do 
with challenging very Eurocentric ideas about landmasses or continental divides, um, you know, in world history, you know, East versus West, or even divides like East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, or and so on. Um, so we would like to to loosen up those kind of static categories. At the same time, we want to loosen loosen up um, uh, um, land versus sea dichotomies. You know, because we always feel that if we can combine uh, 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 um, the Mediterranean and the the Indian Ocean and the China Seas, you know, and looking at all the connections. You know, among them, we have a very different Asia altogether. And so, in a sense, what we have been trying to do is, on the one hand, finding very, very deeply empirical cases, deeply critical reading of archives uh, to do the kind of research um, to challenge you know, large you know, conceptual uh, uh, categories uh, and hopefully to force a kind of paradigm change. And so, at the, you know, as we were producing the first volume, I think Peter initiated, actually, um, uh, with our urging, um, to approach Harvard University Press, stretching the need for teamwork and the need for edited volumes for this kind of, of, of work. Um, and, and the editor believes us. So hence, we have the volumes, you know, one on moments of connection, the other on sites of connection, and then the third one coming will be on institutions and peoples of connection. And hopefully in future, we would like to do more, uh, you know, creating uh, uh, um, more and more, uh, um, how would I say, uh, curriculum, classes, uh, um, encouraging uh, uh, younger scholars and our our graduate students to join in. So, so that's more or less, you know, how we 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 got ourselves into this <laughs> this project, you know, in a nutshell. Great, thank you so much. Now, let's actually just move right to the first volume, and we can kind of incorporate and hear from you individually along the way as, as you're inspired to. So this first volume on moments of connection is the volume Changing Times. And this volume asks us to consider moments, dates that marked, as you call them, significant inflection points when certain major cultural processes changed direction. And this is from the introduction. The volume includes contributions by historians, by art historians and anthropologists, and it's quite a wonderful set of um, curated moments and years that you've brought us into. Peter, um, can you tell us a little bit about your vision for the volume? And can you introduce the volume for us in terms of the most important contributions that you think it's making to our collective conversation? Uh, sure. Yeah, I could give you a bit of overview of this. As Helen said, we were trying to get past uh, kind of uh, inherited orthodox conceptions, both of uh, time and space in Asia. Uh, I would say these are not only Eurocentric, but even Asocentric, because Asian nationalism, which predominates in all of these modern nation states, reinforces many of these boundaries of the nation state 
And every nation state had its, its own nationalist history, which focuses often on crucial turning points. In China, of course, it would be 1842, for example, the end of the first opium war. Part of the idea of the first volume was to leave it open to each of the contributors to pick a date that they thought was significant, but not tell them what date to pick. Uh, and encourage people to open their minds to alternative choices from the standard uh, historical narrative. And sure enough, fortunately, we were very uh, gratified to see that people took uh, very unusual dates much of the time, or they took a conventional date and reinterpreted it. You know, you wouldn't think of 1874 as a significant date in the history of Japan. Everyone would focus on 1868, the Meiji Restoration. But in 1874, a kind of new export trading regime based on tea, as Robert Hellyer describes it, uh, started to take hold. And that is arguably when Japan really enters the global economy. Uh, when I wrote about uh, 1557, which is uh, when the Portuguese negotiated their lease in Macau, I people know that date, but I pointed out that this was also the beginning of the resolution of the southeastern so-called uh, dwarf pirates issue and the beginning of the resolution of the uh, northwest frontier. So we could take this one date that's embedded in just one literature, say, about foreign relations, the Portuguese, but connected to many other places uh, uh, around the borders of the Chinese empire. So I think this was a, a nice strategy for getting people to rethink and to sort of point out different inflection points that would make you put these individual countries and empires uh, into a larger world perspective. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for bringing up also your contribution to the volume, which is one of the three early essays, or rather one of your many contributions to the volume since you planned and edited this. But um, you can, in addition to all of that work, you contributed one of three early essays that look at key turning points, again, as articulated in the introduction, in religious, economic, and political formations in the early to mid-16th century. Now, in your particular um, chapter on 1557, as you brought us into, one of the really interesting methodological contributions that the chapter is making, in addition to taking us into this fascinating moment, is you're showing us another way to think about and to practice comparative history. Now, comparative history um, is a kind of historiography that has a lot of challenges to it, right? And there's been a lot of debate and conversation around the benefits and also the challenges of practicing comparative history, um, but at a larger level. Usually people are thinking in terms of civilizational comparisons, not in terms of these really fascinating um, kind of uh, finer grained comparisons that look at a particular moment from different boundaries and from the perspective. Uh, yes, that's right. I think so, that uh, comparative history is, is a rising uh, trend these days. There's lots of debates about methodologies of comparative history these days. Broadly speaking, some people do what I would call binary history. They take one, two places generally that are often quite different and far away from each other, and they uh, go back and forth and compare relative features of each uh, place, say, Ancien Régime France and Imperial China, for example, or England and uh, uh, Japan. And then there's what people call uh, entangled history or uh, histoire croisée in French uh, that looks at interactions uh, between different places, uh, often focuses on trade routes and uh, transnational other processes. Each of these has its 
plus and minuses. I do, in my article, I think are trying to do a little bit of both because I take comparisons of different borders of China. So we're looking at different places within and on the border of the Chinese Empire, but argue that they are connected to each other and to global processes. So the Europeans are coming in uh, to trade. The Chinese migrants from the southeast are going out to the diaspora. The pirates are there. The nomads are there all around this particular moment uh, in the mid-16th century. I think this helps give us a focus to some of these larger scale uh, theoretical paradigm comparisons um, on a particular place in time. But And it also brings in some of the uh, interactivity that the people doing entangled history want to do. Thanks so much. And I think one of the wonderful things about that essay is it's also modeling for us what that kind of a connected comparative history can look like. So there are also many other fabulous essays in this volume. Um, those three essays that I just mentioned that focus on the 16th century are followed by three essays that collectively look at developments in three major maritime-oriented polities in the 17th and 18th centuries. And then we have three essays that look at late 19th and early 20th centuries. And Eric, you actually have a contribution um, in the book that constitutes one of those essays. And this is an essay on the Dutch East Indies in 1910. Now you compare the approach in this essay um, of looking at a single year in the life cycle of a society to dendrology, to a tree ring approach to the history of place and people. So Eric, can you introduce us to your contribution to this volume? And specifically, um, what do you think are some of the most important ways that your essay is speaking to the larger problems of the project, and how does this dendrology approach um, uh, kind of inflect uh, what you're doing here in this essay? Thank, uh, thank you for the question. Um, I think the idea of dendrochronology is kind of an interesting way of looking at history, and, and we're, we're certainly not the first people to, to have done this um, uh, uh, Peter actually makes a reference in, in his article uh, to a title of an important book in Chinese history um, that looked at a that was titled "A Year of No Significance," and he, he makes a nice riff on that by talking about 1557 as being a year of some significance. I think you know historians or people working in other fields can take any year and find some significance to it. But I think what was a conscious attempt of this collectivity of, of authors was to look at years that weren't the ones that were taught in school. Um, uh, Peter mentioned 1868 and the Meiji Restoration in Japan. That's what everybody goes to to think about um, processes of modernity in Japan. Uh, so by Robert Hellyer, one of our authors, taking 1874, it signals thinking about different things. And for Dutch Indonesia... The, the dates tend to be also fairly um, fairly commonly ascribed, which are the common dates. 1910 is interesting for me because it's about that time that the Dutch East Indies were taking on the shape that modern Indonesia more or less has today. If we go back 100 years from our own time to, to right at this moment, uh, the Dutch East Indies uh, underwent a, a process that in Dutch is called the offrounding or rounding off. And another author has used uh, that term uh, to describe what happened. And I think it's useful to think about that because it's it's almost like looking at a mirror 100 years ago for what Indonesia started 
to, uh, to, to grow into at that time. So I was interested in a set of processes that were very international and transnational that involved a lot having to do with migration and the powers of the state, people coming to the Indies that weren't necessarily uh, bumiputras or sons of the soil. Uh, they were coming from China. They were coming from Japan. They were coming from India and the Middle East. And they were passing through this incredible assemblage of 17,000 islands, the world's largest archipelago, uh, moving between what we, what we described as East Asia and South Asia or West Asia, and moving very, very easily through this kind of very permeable um, uh, maritime space at the bottom of Asia. So I was interested in that uh, kind of theme, but we see uh, some of those similar concerns in a number of the other essays in this, in this book, um, uh, certainly in Kerry Ward's essay about the Indian Ocean, but also in um, a number of the other essays, Nancy Um's contribution about Yemen and how uh, uh, Yemen was connected to so many places through coffee and through uh, uh, pilgrimage and uh, radials of Islam. So the maritime element is very important in, in what many of us have done in these essays. And in fact, one of the constant themes, um, both in your piece and also throughout this volume and in the other volume, which we'll get to in a moment, is the importance of, of looking at what was happening both on land and um, on, in the sea. And in fact, the importance and the possibilities that are opened up in thinking beyond land and sea as a dichotomy, right, as coherent kinds of space. And a lot of what's happening in these volumes is a, a really wonderfully productive way of breaking down the land-sea binary um, and asking us to think um, more connectedly and more um, kind of collaborative, collaboratively about um, those sorts of movements that are enabled by both kinds of space. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. So in the introduction to the book, um, you all mentioned that the regions studied in this project needed a much more, as you put it, interactive collaborative style of research. Um, now, it seems to me that that both involved collaboration among one another, um, individuals from very different fields um, in some cases, but also a collaboration among yourselves and the spaces in which you were gathering and meeting to actually have these conversations. So one of the things I'd love to hear about is how you feel about the importance of your collaborations um, with the non-human and, and other, you know, human based environments around you as you were meeting in these different sites and walking together and experiencing the field? How did it shape um, the, what you were doing in the volume to be meeting in, you know, Doha um, or meeting in Qatar, uh, meeting in Oman, meeting in these different spaces? Um, Helen, would you like to start speaking to that perhaps? <laughs> well, being an anthropologist among the, the historians, I'm always you know, pushing for getting out of the archives and, and, and looking at how those historical materials were actually constructed in, in real historical times. So, I mean, a, a lot of what we, what, what we see as history is very selective, right? To be selectively remembered and then selectively recorded. Uh, made and then reread again. Um, so what we are trying to do as a team of uh, mostly historians, anthropologists, and, and 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 so on, is to is to how would I say it, to see the value in you know, of our own disciplines in the others' um, research, um, and so. 
we for the workshops i mean the, for this volume we actually had our workshop in hong kong itself is a city with multi-layered histories and moments of of you know thin and thick moments of construction um and then the group went to uh, um south western uh, uh india um uh, on the advice of eric um and um uh, uh, because we 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 really want to use the feel uh as we watch you know from bangalore all the way down to the tip of kerala to actually see layers of historical processes making that larger regional space so in a sense for me as an anthropologist looking at sort of material objects in in, in real life uh but at the same time understanding how they were made uh uh in very different moments in time so i i think that's a very eye opening way of learning about history through field work mm-hmm. um so so that's one 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 way of answering the question um but the other well, uh, huh, mm-hmm. sorry yes no i just add i think historians need to get their feet on the ground either wet or uh, dirty there's a famous anecdote by the french historian mark bloch who had a teacher Locke, yeah. uh who read documents and archives and claimed that there was never any three-field system in France and Bach comments if he had only looked out his studio study window he could have seen the three-field system <laughs> in the fields outside but the real world didn't make much impression on him that was Bach's teacher Bach said you have to get out there into the fields fields plural that is agrarian fields or the water or somewhere you know to connect the writings in the archives with the places you actually are uh and then if you're in a different place which you're not studying a, a marvelous place like Oman suddenly you see well some things you thought were unique to uh say the chinese hills are also there in the omani hills you know the water systems actually look fairly similar uh so you uh, you can encounter other kinds of resonances and connections that you wouldn't otherwise think about mm-hmm. and in fact the gathering in oman if i'm not um incorrect spurred or is one of the um events that brought about the second volume right that we haven't had a chance to talk about that uh yeah this is a second installment called connected places which showcases essays that collectively emphasize connectedness and motion by looking at a series of spatial moments helen um would you mind bringing us into your vision for this um, for this volume uh well uh hmm how should i i i i sort of mentioned a, a little bit already that we are talking about space in the context of time actually so we are talking about like spatial moments in a sense uh so you know time is never abstract right time is always spatially you know um sort of uh interpreted i would say so yeah i mean the the volume uh, the second volume uh, um uh focuses on sites at which i think cross regional institutions flourished and it actually you know i uh, uh, we started thinking about uh, uh, this volume um very much based on something we've we you know i have done earlier um and i think both eric and and peter were familiar is another volume uh, we did much earlier uh, i did much earlier with two other historians score empire at the margins 
And we're really looking at sites. Again, sites that are rather unfamiliar uh, or considered marginal, considered in between. But in fact, they were hubs of connections, uh, dense with all sorts of things flowing in and out uh, and affecting you know, a, a much larger hinterland. And so in a sense, when we look at these sites, they are not like a homogenous area like the corn belt or wheat belt or whatever, but in, instead these are sites with very structural processes happening all the time. And so that's how we were thinking about how to think, uh, uh, you know, to think physical, in physical terms. Um, so deserts and other, you know, areas, you know, like Oman might look very, very empty for some of us. But in fact, that's were full of meanings, full of life, and full of all sort of, 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 of activities and, and so on. So, in a sense, again, we are thinking about uh, 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 mo- uh, uh, sites just as in the first volume, we're thinking about moments. You know, sites that look like margins, look like empty spaces, but in fact, were places with with a lot of histories in them. And so, so we started with that. And, and, and a major theme um, is on land-based dichotomies. Because if you really think about our mainstream social science, and I don't know about historians, but I imagine similarly, uh, for social sciences, we tend to build cultures, populations, territories, economies, polities, on land-based units, and we missed out the ocean. And so historians and like uh, Karen Wiggum and, and, and geographers like Martin Lewis, uh, they were talking about uh, uh, the myth of continents. You know, in trying to divert our, you know, or, 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 or uh, divert our attention to the ocean, the vast ocean spaces. Uh, but it's like jumping to the the you know, the other side of the coin. So what we want to do is to really bridge the, 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 the maritime and the land. Uh, one way to do it is actually uh, thinking about deltas, river deltas. If you look at that Asia, I mean, from, from uh, Yangtze River Delta in middle, you know, sort of eastern China, all the way down, you know, through, you know, uh, 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 to, to think about um, marsh gypsies in Iraq and whatever. I mean, you see lots of areas that is, you know, sort of water, but always in the process of becoming land. Mm-hmm. And so it's that interactive, processual, fluid, contingent kind of, of, of sites that we would like to focus on. And you can tell in our volume two, there are a, 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 a few of the essays that are based on these kind of places. And some of those essays are actually authored by some of you. We won't have time to talk in um, any detail about those individual contributions, but I'd just like to mark them for listeners who might be interested. So Helen, you have a co-authored essay in here that focuses on um, a really fascinating local township gazetteer, um, Mm -hmm. which really takes us into really, really interesting issues of um, kind of the indigenous settlement of Chaolian, of what, and also asks us 
to think mm-hmm. about what we can gather from a source, a gazetteer like this. And mm-hmm. Peter has a fascinating essay that looks at four male travelers um, who are experiencing border crossings in 18th century China. And it really, um, among other things, asks us to think about frontiers and borders as cultural and social spaces, as processes. And it's a really wonderfully, again, polyvocal um, entree into mm-hmm. thinking about this uh, connected and comparative histories. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more going on in this volume mm-hmm. that we can talk about, right? <laughs> but there's, of course, a third volume coming out as well. And so we don't want to um, neglect uh, the opportunity to learn a little bit about that one. Eric, um, could you maybe take us into your vision for the third volume? What is that going to emphasize and how is that volume going to, um, when it eventually comes out, speak to and extend some of the conversations that we've already been having and that you've already been having in the first two volumes? Right. Um, well, I think the all along the collective vision has been that we're going to try to do this as a three-volume set. And the reason for that is that we felt, you know, thinking about Asia inside out as such a large uh, compendium of geographies, people, uh, spaces, moments, as as both uh, 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 Helen and Peter have described, it's just beyond any one scholar to really do that that kind of day and age where someone can talk about these kinds of things in such a confident way is is just about over. There's very few people who can do that anymore. But as a collectivity of thirty, thirty five, thirty six authors, let's say uh, roughly twelve per volume. We thought this is going to be amazing that we would be able to gather that expertise of archives, languages, fieldwork experiences uh, into one uh, uh, tripartite, uh, a, a kind of triptych almost of what is possible in thinking about this huge region, the, the, you know, the world's largest continent and its history and, and contemporary moments of connection. So that has been something that we've thought from the beginning and uh, right from the start, the idea was to focus the first volume on the temporal aspect of this and rethink some of the important moments of connection. The second uh, volume was going to be about place and uh, spatiality and how would this would look vis-a-vis geography. And the third volume, which we're um, in the process of working on now, has to really do with uh, human hu- human actors actually making up the connective tissue between these places. Um, so what we've looked at in kind of these metastructural terms so far, we're now going to try to uh, end the series by uh, putting flesh on the bones, so to speak, uh, with, with human beings, human actions, human history, uh, human activity. And we have a, uh, a notion of what we'd like this to look like. We haven't um, completely organized it yet, but um, we have a, a sense that because the first uh, volume took took place in uh, in India for the field trip that we all experienced together, the second volume took place in uh, in West Asia, so from South Asia to West Asia, that the last one is going to have a either an East or a Southeast Asian component um, to try to kind of uh, spread the wealth among the different parts of Asia. Uh, so that's what we're hoping to do. So, Eric, for you, um, we've already heard a little bit um, about this from. Helen and from Peter, for you, has the fact that you've been meeting in these different spaces qualitatively changed your vision for the project? And or um, in what ways do you feel like the collaboration among not just um, all of you, but among yourselves and the spaces in which you've been working and meeting 
Um, how have you felt like that's been cha- um, shaping your vision for the project? Right. Well, look, it's a, it's a huge opportunity um, to do something like this just realistically involves a lot of money. And uh, I don't happen to have that money myself, uh, but I, I, <laughs> thankfully I happen to know <laughs> Professor Hsu. <laughs> and, no, uh, no, Eric. <laughs> um, she, she actually has been really integral. I mean, both Peter and Helen have been integral in different parts of the project. That they're really um, amazingly well-read people and uh, with uh, incredible broad horizons. But nothing happens without money. And uh, Helen's contacts really got this project off the ground in the beginning for the three of us. And that there's just no way to proceed without something like that. And I think when we approached Harvard about the books, you know, the, the tendency in publishing is to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Make, make your books smaller. Make the ideas smaller because you're covering your own space that you're going to be an expert and make your contribution and they want the physical books to be smaller because they have the presses have ideas about you know selling thousands and thousands of copies, and that's only possible if the books are affordable. And we, as a as a collective of the three of us, we took the opposite task. We said we're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, <laughs> and volume gonna... two is almost ninety pages longer than volume that's one. Right. I don't know if we follow this to volume three. That's right. That's right. We might be getting off. Pages. Exactly. We might be getting off the stage entirely, but. Um, <laughs> I think the idea is it's it's a kind of, uh, if I can say this, it's a kind of humility that is born out of the fact that there's only so much you can do as a single scholar. But if you team up with smart people, both in your discipline and in other disciplines, both in your geography and in other geographies, there, the limits become much larger of what you can achieve. And what we hope is that as a collectivity of three books, that people will look at this and say, wow, Asia is not what I thought it was, Asia is actually all of these spinning geographies, spinning people, uh, time, times that we never thought were important but turned out to be really crucial in hindsight, even though it doesn't say so in the, in the textbook I read as a child. And look, look how we can reconceive of this space. Uh, if we've done anything to start a conversation like that or to continue a conversation like that, then I think all three of us would be very grateful. Do either um, Helen or Peter, do either of you want to speak to... Um the third volume or the larger issues that Eric was mentioning? I just say that, well, the people also appear in the places and times volumes and places and times appear in the people volumes. So they're, they're not radically separate from each other, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a common uh, uh, perspective and a common uh, goal uh, to sort of re- think uh, spaces, times, and peoples uh, all together uh, within Asia. Okay. And yeah. I think back to the other collective volumes, the famous volumes, G. William Skinner and Elvin edited on the city in Imperial China. Those were major volumes defining the Chinese urban history. Uh, those were very valuable in defining a certain moment and a certain way of looking at things. But they were on one place in one empire. You know, and this is something much more ambitious, but... Uh, in some ways more modest because all of us, we don't have one single paradigm to impose on everybody. Everyone follows their own trail, and yet we think it, it overlaps enough and creates enough resonance to make it worthwhile. And I think we'll inspire more people beyond the 35 or so we have in these three volumes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if there, just to kind of look ahead and as we come um, toward 
the conclusion of our conversation, right? If you can believe that, right? We're almost already there. Um, We've we've talked a lot about the ways that these three volumes are collectively accomplishing way more than any single scholar can accomplish and way more than perhaps a singly authored piece, um, you know, written in a particular place um, or from a particular place can accomplish. Is there anything that any of you feel that you would have loved to be able to do in this project but that didn't, hasn't yet happened. And in a future project, in terms of your vision for where do we go from here, in an ideal world, if you had a million billion dollars, right, of Helen's coffers, <laughs> what would you love to see happen after this third volume? Where, in a, Essentially, where do we go from here? And what vision, if at all, do any of you have for what you'd like to see happening that, that didn't yet happen with these projects? Well, if I had the funding uh, and if we were moving in this direction, I would put it all on the web and make interactive maps of all the things going on here. We are always stuck with books, with static maps, uh, you know, and uh, when we're talking about flows and interactions and changes over time, uh, one map in a book is not going to do it. We have put also visual pictures. We put a lot of great photos by Helen and others in the book mm-hmm. to indicate the importance of visualization, and I hope people do buy the uh, the book with the beautiful covers on them, so they can see the pictures there. But a lot of this on the web would be incredibly exciting, and if we had the funding to design a website around it, I think that would be very exciting to do. Mm-hmm. Eric, what would you envision as your kind of ideal way to move forward from the project, or is there anything you wished you would have been able to do? that you'd love to do in the future? Well, I think that, you know, the amount of money involved to make this project a reality really has kind of made it a, a, a kind of dream come true scenario in some ways. We all got to travel to places that were not our specialty uh, landscapes, not the places that we knew best. Um, that's been a very, very important part of this for me. Um, in terms of what comes next, I, I can just say that, you know, my next monograph uh, is, has been very influenced by this and uh, my thinking about it. And this is just a standalone, you know, one scholar monograph has been very influenced by my experiences doing this project with Helen and Peter, because it's opened my eyes to certain things that I hadn't thought of before. Um, thinking like an anthropologist, thinking like a sinologist, um, uh, all these possibilities that are not my normal, <laughs> my normal ontology. So um, I think that's really been very valuable and very useful for me. So, Eric, if I could just ask you to expand a little bit, can you think of what's an example of something concrete that you're doing now in this monograph that you're working on that you would not have done were it not for this experience with this project? Right. Um, I think one of it is is just really being serious about going to all the places and not just writing about them. I mean, I'm I'm a historian and there are certain limits to being a historian. Some of that has to do with languages and archives. Some of it also has to do just to be honest about your your own life cycle. And uh, I'm a kind of mid-career scholar. I have small children. Uh, um, I, I have a mortgage. I have all these kinds of things. I have duties at, at my university. I run several programs. So it's not that easy for me to get out uh, and do things uh, as it used to be when I was younger. And it might be a little bit easier when I'm older uh, to, to go full circle and do this kind of thing again. So I think 
one of the things that this project has kind of hit home in, in my consciousness is that you need to go to places to understand more. So I had been to the Middle East several times, but I had not had, you know, time to go to a place like Oman and really have a much more leisurely uh, look around at certain things that were interesting to me. And I could I could name a bunch of different things. We, we don't really have the time to go into specifics, but I'll just say one thing as an example is going to a coastal city named Sur, S-U-R, that was, that, that was a very meaningful place to me because it, it showed in a lot of little ways how connected places that we think of as being very much off the main roots of connection can be. Um, when we got to Sur, we went to this giant fish market there. And in addition to standing around and trying to write down the kinds of fish that I, that I saw, because I'm interested in maritime things generally, uh, we saw a coffee shop outside of the, the fish market that advertised in Bahasa Indonesia. And I knew that because I'm an Indonesianist. So there are clearly Indonesians who are workers in Oman, and that was new to me. I had no idea about that, um, and I wouldn't have known that unless I had gone to Oman. Wonderful. And <laughs> Helen, we, we only have a couple of minutes left, but um, mm-hmm. if you could briefly kind of maybe bring us home by saying if, for you, if there's any way that your work now um, is influenced by this project or, and or um, where you'd like to see it going in the future. Yeah, well, I haven't totally defected to the his, history di- discipline yet, but I'm sure people already see me very much in that camp. Um, so um, I, I, I think in the future, I really want to continue these kind of efforts, not, you know, the Asia Inside Out project, but other similar crossing boundaries kind of projects involving younger colleagues and, and advanced grad students, um, um, encouraging pe- uh, uh, colleagues to start teaching courses that way. I, know I do have one called Cultures and Markets in, you know, talking about inter-Asian uh, uh, kind of, of themes. And um, so once you build that into curriculum, we work with SSRC to make sure that eventually funding models may change uh, and redrawing regional boundaries for funding, that will be tremendously important for for uh, nurturing a younger generation of scholars along these kind of paradigm shift. So, I mean, the one last thing is I am already taking on a new project on China-Africa, but it's not China-Africa in terms of two continents, uh, but instead China-Africa via this very rich, complex, interconnected interracial landscape. That is very different from the existing China-Africa kind of literature, uh, um, so I think there's tremendous potential for expansion. Well, thank you um, to all three of you for bringing us into this project, um, for giving us some background and insight into these volumes, and the best of luck to you, not only on your individual work, but also on the third volume. We'll really look forward to reading that and hopefully perhaps talk again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.